Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and this week we're talking about the Broadway Melody. So this film was shot in 1929, won in 1930, and was the second Best Picture winner. And technically the title of it is just the Broadway Melody. Um, If you are trying to look up this film, you're going to want to look it up under the Broadway Melody 1929, because there were three more MGM Broadway melodies, one in 1936, one in 1938, and one in 1940. And these are not really sequels, but they're same format, similar premise of a group of people trying to put on some type of show or trying to make it on Broadway. Yeah, definitely MGM working to capitalize on the popularity of the format. Mm-hmm. So. And that's something I think we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast because this is not only our first sound film to win Best Picture, but it is also the first musical to win. It is a very early musical. Um, musicals became very popular when audio became available um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And then, interestingly enough, it was also one of the first to feature a Technicolor sequence, and it kind of started a trend as far as musicals, including some sort of Technicolor sequence, and of course, this would have been early Technicolor, so we're talking just like red and green filters, nothing fancy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later, because it really is kind of the ancestor, the beginning of the mu- movie musicals, which MGM in particular became very known for. So as Maggie said, this was the very first film to win uh, a Best Picture that was one of the talkies. And so in cinematography of the film, you can actually kind of see how that's influenced how it's shot. So not only were some of the scenes done in such a way to really show off what MGM was able to do with audio, um, you also have some very static set shots with some key set pieces. to, to make sure that they're capturing the audio of the actors appropriately. Yeah, and I think they were still kind of trying to figure out a lot of that because some of the levels seem weird, Absolutely. especially in early parts of the film, or you have problems where like the instrumentation is kind of drowning out some of the singing. Yes. Now, so I think they were definitely still trying to figure out how best to kind of like work the technological setup and then also just like what are the best methods for capturing the sound and overlaying it onto the film i really did enjoy the very first scenes of this movie though we were talking about a sound recording studio and you have multiple recording rooms with different styles of music and different uh, musicians and things like that and you get to hear and see what they're doing Mm -hmm. throughout a, a short set of scenes in those different rooms and so like hearing that cacophony at the very beginning was like a very I'm gonna say grounding but it was like an introduction to okay look you can hear this you can see this let's wow you with our sound effects effectively well and it's interesting too because obviously this is not a silent picture so they have dialogue available to them but it still opens up with a title card establishing setting and it does that every so often where it will jump locations and tell you you what the new setting is. Yeah. Um, And I mean, it's still something you see like a little bit in movies today where you'll see like two weeks later, or you'll see like a little bit of text at the bottom that says like setting in place really quickly. So I don't think it's something that's completely gone away, but this was still very much in the style of the silent movie. Cause it's something we talked a lot about in our wings episode was the use of those title cards and you still see them 
being used a little bit in mm-hmm. this. And I didn't necessarily feel that they were necessary. I agree, but it does not surprise me that they're there at all. Yeah. Cause I, I'm thinking that especially in that time where you didn't have a musical example that you had seen before to like give you context on how this is working grounding the story in some very specific locations I think would have been important for audiences of that time. Mm -hmm. Well I think it's something that you just see with movies in general because I mean at this point you know we are 19 this was made 1929 like in the grand scheme of things movies as an art form have not been around for that long especially in the form of like feature film full storytelling so I think you're still seeing like elements of people figuring out what is the best way to do this with visual cues and then now because sound is available what's the best way to do this with audio cues too and I think you see some of the growing pains of that in this movie absolutely now talking about the styles of shots that they had in the film I am definitely a product of my time where I prefer more dynamic (laughs) movies so Wings did a great job of these Mm -hmm. very dynamic moving shots that kept your interest and when they had those still shots it was very deliberate wanted to focus in on some action or a specific character's reaction in Broadway Melody it felt more like they needed the still shots in order to work around recording equipment well I think that's because some of the framing was just bizarre on some of those still still shots because I think you know I mean that's something that you're going to see in movies throughout the 30s and the 40s is that you'll get sequences with more dynamic movements but a lot of times you still have that like static camera in a room blocking based around like the room and the set but like in this movie in particular like there was just weird framing like there's the scene in their apartment where like the girl's apartment where Jack Warner comes in and puts his hat down on a table that's like in the foreground of the shot, but like slightly off center. And then there's like a chair partially in the foreground too. I'm going to be fully honest. I did not like the shots in the girls' apartments really at all. Maybe in the bedroom, but in that main room, everything felt just ever so slightly off. Yeah, and I'm not sure if that was, like, where the camera was placed or, like, how the set was done. But, like, even when you have, like, shots of the musical numbers on the stage, like, when you had that, like, awesome tap number of the girl doing, like, tap on point, Mm -hmm. which was amazing. But, like, when it would pull back from the close-up on her feet, you, like, couldn't see the very bottom of the shot. It was, like, the camera was a little too high. And I think that was maybe to try and capture that backdrop. But like it, it was weird to me because it wasn't centered on the action. And this is one of the first films that was a musical that wasn't a direct filming of a vaudeville act. So these shots, especially of the show, seem to be a throwback to that. We're just going to film the stage and what's going on there. And we're not going to make deliberate decisions about focusing on certain portions of the act yeah. it's just we're gonna uh, record the act for what it is well and I think you see that some too because there were times when it felt like the music was relevant to what was going on in the film and there are other times where it didn't feel relevant and I think that's part of you know it's early musical again they're still 
figuring a lot of this out and um, kind of way you see them sort of immediately take lessons from that is another one of the best picture nominees from that year was the Hollywood Review of 1929, which is MGM. And so the Broadway Melody came out in February, was a massive hit, highest grossing picture of 1929. Well, MGM comes out, same producer too, Irving Thalberg, comes out with the Hollywood Review in June of that year. And it's bigger, more set pieces, more people, more numbers. So you kind of see them look at Broadway Melody, say what is the successes we can take from this and like the learnings and put them into a bigger, I guess, more evolved, more developed musical. Yeah, definitely a lot of experimentation going on Mm -hmm. in this film. I did appreciate to seeing some of the the situations where you could tell they were obscuring recording equipment though. (laughs) Um, There was one scene in the dress rehearsal where they were on stage and the one gladiator type character was singing. Mm -hmm. And there's this very conspicuous fan (laughs) just sitting right in front of him. And I don't know for sure that that hit a microphone, but it would seem out of place otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> and so even in the apartment, I'm sure that they had to work around making sure that the actors were mic'd and picked up appropriately. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that would have been, you know, this wasn't the first talkie by any means, but I mean, it's within a year or so of when the first one was, like people still are getting used to this technology. But that being said, I went into this thinking that it was kind of just like a compilation of musical numbers. I didn't realize there was going to be any real story to it. So like I'd actually like to talk a lot about the story and the characters because first off, I was surprised that there kind of was any. But I mean, that's (laughs) me just not knowing what the film was. Yeah, I do like that uh, this I believe was the first movie to deal with where a small town sister act or a small town talent trying to make it big in New York, which I know we are now very familiar with um, as a trope. I mean, there's been four Broadway melodies, so of course we are. (laughs) Um, But that was interesting to see how you have the sister act that's then coming in and going to try and make it in New York. Mm -hmm. And when you have what's kind of become cliches now and what I'd be willing to belt was vaudeville cliches as well where you have like the pretty dumb one and then you have like the cynical streetwise smarter over older sister yes I really did enjoy Hank's dialogue and some of her quips so the dialogue in general I was not a huge fan of I thought it was not super well written but Bessie Love my god she acted the shit out of the material yes she did so much with what she was given and she was nominated for best actress that year she lost to mary pickford for coquette but um man like as far as performances go i think she was kind of the bright light for me yes agreed i queenie uh, she i think she was she got there for me yes i'm not sure that she blew me away but then again we're used to this trope of the pretty dumb one (laughs) well and i thought anita page's performance 
definitely got better over the course of the film. And I mean, they, I think the writing for Queenie's character got better. And I think they gave her some character growth. Yes. So I almost think that that improvement in what we're seeing is part of her evolution as a character, Mm -hmm. which you could argue how far she actually evolves. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that like, if you had to pick one word to describe this movie, it would be inconsistent. I think the characters behave inconsistently. Sometimes I think the writing's inconsistent. I mean, even like just like the quality can be inconsistent from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of the inconsistent behavior, Queenie's a very good example. Yes. So, especially in the beginning of the film, you see her being very meek, basically the charge of her older sister, Hank. And then once she starts becoming involved with Warner, which I love her response when he first asks her out and he's like, yeah, the prettiest girl in New York, like that's you. And she goes, no, it's not. And just runs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Loved it. Still felt a little out of character. It f- felt out of character due to the fact that like in the next scene, you find out she's like been seeing him. Yeah. Well, and that's where even a little bit later on, after Warner has offered his car, this really swanky apartment, uh, that sort of thing, she gets outraged and starts to yell at Hank and... Which, like, quite frankly, at that point in the movie, I was like, everyone just leave Queenie alone. Like, because I think... At the beginning, like you said, she's very much under Hank's care, and you're kind of given her... Like, people call her girl and sweet a lot, which Mm -hmm. is also super icky. Like, the infantilization of her coupled with, like, sexualizing her, like, that was super icky. But, um, like, you kind of see her from Hank's perspective and that, like, she can't take care of herself. But then I think by the end of it, you're like... No, Queenie actually knew better what she was doing than people gave her credit for. Yeah. Like, it I think she's still in over her head agreed, in a lot of ways, agreed. but I think she wasn't just dumb. Right. Which I, I appreciated showing at least, at least a little bit of depth mm-hmm. for her with that. Because um, I it was a little infuriating just seeing her flounder. Yeah. Especially in those dance numbers, because Anita Page has no rhythm. None. That was <laughs> that first time that they did their sister act for uh, the one producer. I was surprised at how badly they danced and sung. Okay. Even if the piano was sabotaged. Well, and part of that is, like, quality of singing and, like, the styles that were popular at the time. But, like, I mean... Bessie left one. If you notice all of the dancing and all the dancers, like dancing from the 1920s -hmm. is very different from what it even is in like the thirties. Like it's very like loose. There's not a lot of emphasis on like gracefulness. Well, and that's fine. Right. Which I think Bessie love can do like, Mm -hmm. like her dancing was like energetic and fun, but like Anita Page just can't hold a beat. (laughs) Well, and that was really evident. 
on the dress rehearsal night. Yes. I, that was actually the first time that I think we saw Anita Page actually dance. Yeah. Was it Anita Page or was it uh, not? It was Bessie. I mean, we I'm see sorry. her dance in the apartment a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so that apartment dancing scene. What was Anita Page doing with her hands? So yeah, Anita Page really can't keep a beat. I, I mean, I, I guess it's sort of fitting with Queenie's character because, I mean, at the end of the day, Queenie is sort of like cast because of her looks, mm-hmm. which... <laughs> People, she gets down like after that scene, and everyone's like, "You did such an amazing job!" And it's like she stood on the bow of a ship and didn't fall off. And she smised for her life. I guess she, I guess it's a smize, I guess. <laughs> but like that was weird. And of course, right before it, there's that like really gross part when they're like, "We need to get you out of your clothes," and basically start like stripping her backstage. And she's like, "Uh, I'm no. not okay with this," and I'm like. No, they just undressed her without her consent. Yeah. I I think in addition to inconsistent, this film did not age well. No. Especially for now, which is probably why both Maggie and I are being much more critical than we were of Wings. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting from a historical perspective. I mean, especially when you consider all the stuff that's come out in the past year or so in Hollywood, that like a lot of really gross behavior is still going on and was still being covered up for a long time. And you have people, you know, taking a stand now and coming out and talking about it. I think, you know, watching this movie and seeing kind of the way in which uh, Bessie Love's character Hank and then of course Anita Page's character Queenie are treated especially Queenie and kind of like just the expectation that we that like producers could be like hey um, we need you to take off all your clothes because we want you to stand on the bow of the ship now and she doesn't really have a whole lot of choice or like mm-hmm. even time to put up resistance well yeah it's the people who are in charge are the gatekeepers to your career Mm-hmm. And for all intents and purposes, in that theater, they are a god. Yeah, you really see abuses of power. Um, I really wanted to talk about uh, Charles King's character, Eddie. Oh, I'm so conflicted on Eddie. <laughs> I don't like Charles I, I... King's performance. I, you know, whereas we were saying. Bessie Love was doing what she could with that dialogue. I felt like Charles King gave up. His delivery was just like odd. It was often really stilted. I'm not sure if he was putting on an accent or if that's how he talked or if that was like an accepted accent for film at the time. But it was just like a little weird and off to me. And also like he, he's supposed to kind of be the, like the hero but he's still a scumbag yeah so the very first scene where he comes into the girl's apartment first off he's creepy as fuck to queenie exactly it's like oh you were so young last time when i saw you but now you're so pretty and he's supposed to be there for hank yeah like uh, and like then, i said scum <laughs> yeah and then it's the whole like he falls in love with queenie and like, which no one tells Hank about. I was kind of wanted to be like, Queenie, you either, like, you need to tell Hank 
what's going on. You need to tell her what's going on and then tell everyone to leave you alone. But like, yeah, so he falls in love with Queenie and then there's the whole bit at the end where like he rescues her. Yeah, quote, rescues her, which quite frankly, I think Queenie could have taken Warner because like Anita Page is not teeny tiny. Like she looked like she could land a right hook. Um, But yeah, he quote like rescues her. And I have a note. Oh, let me find it. Oh, my note is Eddie's ego is the most fragile fucking thing because he's got that bit at the beginning where he's like yelling at the orchestra for drowning him out. He talks all about like how he just wants to perform like his music and then he quote rescues Queenie and at the end of it is like, remember, it took six of them to throw me out. Now, with that scene at the end. As much as the content. And then he's flirting with Hank's new partner at the end. And is like, Queenie, don't worry. But then, like, mugs to Uncle Jed. Like, this crazy bitch. <laughs> like I said, he's scum. Yeah. I was. I wrote down, I was like, he's 100% cheating on Queenie. Yeah. Which, was that normal for that time for men in show business? Probably. Yeah. But, like, I, yeah. I was like, I don't, not satisfied with this person supposedly being our hero. Yeah. Now, to go to that scene at the end where he rescues, quote-unquote rescues Queenie, I do think that that was very beautifully shot. So you get have her in the bedroom with Warner, and he comes... Uh, sorry, Eddie comes in. And then as Eddie's getting thrown out, you have the shot out of the bedroom door, out the front door of this apartment, and just a beautiful framing of all of the activity of the partygoers throwing out eddie oh yeah and then when they have him in the hallway too it's the way that they're framed within that scene i thought was really nice Mm -hmm. so there were some good shots in this i mean again going (laughs) back to like if i describe this movie in one word it would be inconsistent because you have like moments of brightness and then you have other moments where you're like was somebody sick this day? Like, was someone who was supposed to be taking care of this just, like, AWOL? Yeah. So. Um, And then I think we need to talk a little bit more about Bessie Love. Because, in particular, the scene where she breaks down, where she basically confronts Eddie, and she's like, no, I know you're in love with her, and, like, you just are sitting here and letting her go. And then she tells him, like, oh, I never actually loved you. I was just, like, using you. Which, of course, is a lie. And then he leaves, and you see her break down. Mm-hmm. And, like, she decides she's going to basically, like, find a new partner. And, like, she's going to move on. Mm-hmm. But, like, I thought Bessie Love did an amazing job with that. And, like, taking off the makeup and, like, the costume. And also probably one of the most realistic breakdowns I think I've seen in a film. Yes. So that scene in particular... In- Proved Hank's standing in my mind by a whole bunch because she is actively manipulating Eddie in such a way that he's supposed to get her sister out of trouble. Yeah. Which props to her for being the bigger person in this scene. No, I mean, you know, I said like Eddie's quote supposed to be the hero. I mean, the real hero is Hank. Hero. Like, <laughs> let's be real. Um, but yeah, no, that performance there was like, Oh, this got her the nomination. Like, this is why she was nominated. Mm-hmm. Very good scene. Mm-hmm. So to move 
into some more of the like technical background stuff with this film i'd like to talk a little bit about the sets so one particularly impressive thing i saw was the the vaudevillac sets themselves Mm -hmm. maybe not the main skyline where we see the opening broadway melody number being sung right but definitely the ship where you're able to have this giant set of angelic looking women all like it's like so extravagant it's also like this is pre bugsby berkeley but you can see like where that fits and like the evolution from like stage vaudeville acts to movies like the broadway melody which are basically just like filming a vaudeville act Mm -hmm. on the stage to like Bugsby Berkeley where you have like these massive sets and like hundreds and hundreds of people and you have like the camera moving around the set so you can kind of like see where this fits on that like roadmap definitely and I thought that the ship sets in particular was fairly impressive but I also enjoyed the wedding scenes set so I know it was very very simple but the effectiveness of having the trap doors with the dancers coming in in multiple different levels mm-hmm. on the stage and then even the fun little effect with the starburst where you have the bride and bridegroom coming out from the centered starburst mm-hmm. that kind of opens up and reveals them it was i don't know I, I thought it was effective for that particular scene even if in my head i was kind of confused as to where this felt fit into the film as a whole <laughs> yeah Yeah, it's, again, like, you have, instead of integrating the music into a story the way that I think, you know, a lot of, like, modern musicals and a lot of, like, later musicals even, like, when you think about, like, the 19, like, the MGM 1940s, 1950s musical heyday, where you have the music integrated in the story it's supporting the story it's about the story this was very much a story built around music absolutely which the the story is let's build a broadway musical yeah i mean it's a very (laughs) simple premise agreed yeah but i mean you know as stunning as the like the musical and like number sets were it was a little lacking in other set pieces with the exception of the apartment oh that art deco style apartment was amazing (laughs) which i mean i guess you know in retrospect if you think of like the girl's apartment which we spend a lot of time in it being so spare and lackluster versus kind of like the art deco apartment what queenie could have i mean maybe that is more of a conscious choice than i'm giving it credit for absolutely that that dichotomy i could see now the dressing room set for example and this could just be my personal taste with black and white films i found the dressing room to be extremely cluttered in a way that was almost distracting at times i could see that i loved the way they blocked around that though yes they worked very well with like hank never being able to find her hat and like having to like dig through costumes and stuff like that so i did enjoy the scenes within that set even if the set itself maybe wasn't like there could have been better ways to do it absolutely but again that's a testament to some of the directorial and acting work that went on Mm -hmm. within those sets so kind of with 
the sets, um, particularly that dressing room set, talking a little bit about costuming, because I thought it was very interesting what they dressed the character of Queenie in versus what they dressed Hank in. And I mean, you know, you're kind of given just from their names to understand that, like, Queenie's the glamorous one, whereas, like, Hank's the one in charge, she's the plain one, she's the smart one, she's the normal one, and... Yeah, and that did come through in the costumes, like the Broadway Melody opening number, where Mm -hmm. they're both in these black and, well, (laughs) it's a black and white film, so they're black and white (laughs) sequins, but you have Hank in the deconstructed top hat of sorts, Mm -hmm. and then Queenie in something that's a a bit more flapper, Mm -hmm. um, again, serving to reinforce the more masculine air that they were giving Hank. Yeah, well, and like Hank's always wearing some form of suit. Yes. Whereas Queenie is wearing a more traditional, like, 1920s dress. Yes. Well, and one interesting thing with the number that they did in the middle of the show, this was where they had the kind of weird antenna thing yeah. with the, <laughs> the feathers. The, like, classic Vegas showgirl outfit. Yes. That was the first time that they had them dressed identically, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting to see how once they were effectively equals there that's when you have these this discord between them immediately off stage um and it's like okay our roles are very much protector and little sister yeah not equals and that was reinforced by the costuming there yeah well and it's you know a different kind of inequality sometimes where it's like yes hank's in charge but like queenie's the one with the glamour and the one who's basically the reason that they're able to make career moves, even though Hank thinks she's the one making all the career moves, which I think is, you know, very interesting and kind of speaks more to Queenie's character development as well is the fact that like you realize that part of the reason she's putting up with Jack Warner is because this is ensuring them the career moves that they want. Right. Well, and that was enforced from the beginning because it was Queenie who made the deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it wasn't Hank. Yeah. So continuing with the costuming a little bit, I did actually really like the costuming and even the blocking in Queenie's birthday scene that um, Jock Warner was Mm -hmm. throwing. So Queenie stood out so much in that brighter sparkly dress that she was wearing well and i think she was the only blonde at the table too yes so they did a really good job at setting her out which i think only reinforced the idea that she is the star and she is the honored guest and should be focused on but it's interesting that it's like she is kind of treated as a star in some ways but like she's still very much a chorus girl Almost like a lot Yeah. She's not, like, their act isn't really, like, a headliner act. Or if it's supposed to be, it's not conveyed as that. Um, The one thing about that scene that I didn't like, though, was Anita Page, it was, like, with her performance, was it was like Queenie was very suddenly very drunk. Like, when she started her speech, it didn't seem like that. But then when they, like, got up to dance, it was, like, suddenly she was, like, slurring her words and everything. And I was, like, 
I well, you've never been in that position where you can't tell you're drunk till you stand up. <laughs> I mean, I have, but I expect everyone else in the room can tell that I'm drunk. <laughs> I did like the dancing scene though, so I, I believe there was another really nice tracking shot through a, a crowd of dancers. That excuse me, mm. it wasn't a tracking shot. It was Jock and Queenie dancing up through a set of dancers yeah. and them closing in behind. I thought that was a beautiful shot. Um, then when Warner got her off to the side a little bit to give her the bracelet, well, I thought the worst. But again, that was another scene that I wasn't so much of a fan of. So this beautiful shining scene followed by something that I felt felt yeah. flat. Yeah. It's like... A lot of the times in this movie, it felt like it was making some sort of moral commentary, but not in the way I wanted it to. <laughs> it's almost like a postcode film, pre-code, because Queenie's... I mean, it's still very much pre-code in some ways, but it's it's very much like of that 1920s time, like this poor, sweet girl who's in over her head and she's going to be taken advantage of and it's up to the people And like what she her. should want is like a good stable marriage. And that's where she ends up. Well, right, but then there's like that weird speech at the end about like Hank, you're just like a a tramp, like a traveler. Like you're just never going to settle down. And like Hank looks really sad about it. And like, I wanted what I wanted it to be was first off, I didn't want Queenie ending up with either Jack Warner or Eddie. Like I wanted so much more for it to be like two sisters who come back together and are like, no, we can do this and we can do this our own way. Like, we don't have to rely on, like, this system or, like, them finding a way to, like, break through the system. Right. Now, speaking of the system, we haven't really touched upon their uncle at all. Yes. And that, he's just a weird character that I still can't really figure out how fit he fits in. Yeah, like, I mean, he's also a little creepy to Queenie at the very beginning. Everyone's just real creepy to Queenie the whole time. <laughs> But he's like a he's like a little creepy, but then he's also like got a stutter that like they try and play for laughs, but like it doesn't really work and like the stutter kind of comes in and out. And like he's supposed to be their agent, I think, but then like he's Eddie's the one who gets them the exactly. audition. Well, and Eddie got them the audition. Then they actually got themselves a place in the show. Or Queenie so, got them a well, place Queenie in the did, show. Yeah. So, okay, Uncle but then, Dad, what is your point? But then Hank goes to him to find like her new act partner. So maybe he's her manager now. Like it's very, it's very unclear. Yes. Didn't dislike his acting. No, like but... it was fine. I just wasn't sure what the function of the character was. Okay, so kind of the last, like, major thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, we talked about this movie being the ancestor of musicals or, like, the grandfather of musicals. Um, so I just wanted to talk about kind of that influence. And we've touched on bits of it, but there's one bit in particular I wanted to talk about. And that is how this movie factors into one of my favorite movies of all time, maybe my favorite musical, 
Um, and according to the American Film Institute, the best musical of all time, Singing in the Rain. So a little background as to why this ties in. Um, the premise of Singing in the Rain was that some people at MGM wanted to do a film based entirely on um, a song catalog by Arthur Freed and I can't remember the first name, but it was Brown who wrote a lot of the music for the Broadway melody and did music for a ton of those early musicals. And um, the idea with Singing in the Rain was to take those songs and, you know, not only from the Broadway melody, but from a lot of movies of that era and tell a story about musicals and the transition from silent to sound using those songs. So in particular, there are three songs from this movie that appear in bits in Singing in the Rain, and that is the Broadway melody. There's like a whole sequence in Singing in the Rain that they're like, quote, shooting for the musical. And it starts with Gene Kelly just singing a Broadway melody in front of a backdrop that is incredibly similar to the building backdrop that um, the character of Eddie sings the song in front of. So there's that. Um, there is also the painted the wedding of the painted dolls. Uh, the beginning of that features in like a little bit of a montage section of Singing in the Rain. Um, and then lastly, the song that Eddie sings to Queenie to tell her that he loves her is sung by Gene Kelly's character to Debbie Reynolds' character to tell her that he loves her. See, I'm glad you did this research because I knew, I knew that I had heard this stuff before. Yeah. I actually was like, I knew Broadway melody and like, I knew the whole like premise behind singing in the rain, but then like the painted dolls started and I was like, that's from singing in the rain. And then I was like listening to the song that like Eddie was singing to Queenie and I was like, I'm pretty sure that's in singing in the rain too. So I had to confirm, but yeah. So again, you know, while I think we, I, I can safely say this is probably not going to be at the top of either of our lists for our favorite best picture winner it definitely has a lot of influence and I think you know that's something we might see with a lot of these early films is that maybe they don't all hold up as well but that they were definitely very influential and I think you know because this you know it had three nominations but there were two films that year that had five and that were also nominated for Best Picture um, in Old Arizona and The Patriot, um, neither of which I've seen or really know anything about. But I think a huge part of why Broadway Melody won is that it was so innovative at the time from like a technical standpoint and really kind of launched a genre and I think it's kind of like Wings and that you know we were saying Wings was nominated for two awards and 
other than Best Picture, the award it was nominated for was engineering effects, and that a lot of the reason it likely won was based on that technical innovation. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be something that's very interesting going forward is to see how many of these movies won because they did something new and innovative. Maybe not just from like a technological standpoint, but maybe from like cinematography or storytelling versus you know, when movies won or started winning for just being incredible overall movies and like telling a good story and telling it well and just having all the right elements. Right. So while this was definitely not our cup of tea, (laughs) I think we both can appreciate at least how the film has pushed filmmaking forward for its time. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely like it didn't feel like a waste of time to watch by any means. As much as like parts of it frustrated me, I think it's, at least from my perspective, it's the the legacy and kind of the historical context that makes it more interesting than necessarily like the story itself. Agreed. Agreed. Um. So I guess. Yeah, moving into our fun 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 notes. Notes. I personally loved some of the little quips that yes. we had around. So one. Um, was talking about how it's broads way. That was a line from Hank when she yeah. was talking about the uh, harlots that were the chorus girls. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, I love the costume designer. There's um, the bit where the actresses, like the chorus girls can't go through a doorway because the hats are too big. And somebody like snaps at him about it and he goes, I designed the costumes for the show, not the doors for the theater. That character I loved it. He was definitely coded. Everyone, (laughs) yes, everyone who was part of that show is such a prima donna. Like, everyone. Like, the conductor was mad at Eddie. Eddie was mad at the conductor. There was the Roman centurion who was, like, complaining about the spotlight. What the hell was that spotlight dude thinking throwing that light at the actor? (laughs) I mean, realistically, not funny. In the film, I laughed. (laughs) But, yeah, like, that whole bit... um, I liked the exchange between Hank and Queenie with the don't be nervous. I'm not nervous. Neither am I. But like they're both frantically running around that uh, dressing room. Yeah. For the dresser rehearsal. Mm. I have that tap point number. Damn. Yeah. Tapping on point. Didn't know that was a thing. And was shocked when I saw it. So that poor woman's feet. (laughs) It was incredible though. Um, Oh, I also have... The bit where they like cut the sisters because they're like Broadway melody, like that number's too slow. And I was like, first off, cut out that like paragraph of introduction at the beginning of the song. Yeah, unfortunately, or, we're not the directors. Or can't make those they're complaining decisions. about it being too slow. So that number's too slow, but the weird Roman ballad isn't. Well, it's a different function. The ballad is supposed to make you swoon. The introduction is supposed to pump you up. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, I also have Jack Warner is a straight up predator. I mean, Warner, Weinstein. <laughs> coincidence. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely coincidence, but a nice parallel. Oh, there was that like weird bit where Queenie like 
very sexually lights that cigarette for Eddie. And I was like, wait, is she trying to seduce him now? But then, like, she wasn't. Again, inconsistent. Yeah. Then, let's see. Anything else? Oh, when Queenie gets back to the apartment and Hank's, like, in bed after her, like, birthday party, I think. I was, I was like, is Hank dying? Like, I thought we were about to get, like, revealed that, like, Hank was dying because I guess Bessie Level was going for tired or something, and I just misread the performance. <laughs> but she was, like, sitting there, and she was, like, really, like, weak-looking, and I was like, are we about to get some big reveal that, like, Hank's dying? Which, like, quite frankly, I was like, if the storyline takes this turn, I'm all in for it. Well... I don't know. I didn't read that scene. That I guess that was just but me. That's because of the close up on the clock showing it was like 10 past five or whatever it was. So it's like poor Hank has been up all night, gotcha. literally all night and has not slept a wink. No, I mean that like that tracks better, but I was just like, <laughs> you is this like a big thinking. emotional reveal? Yeah. I guess I was just like looking for something in that story to well, like give it were... a bit of a pump up. Um, oh, OMG, that pretty stance in the Wedding of the Painted Dolls. He was so jolly. It was the best dance in the entire film. Well, and I actually enjoyed the Other scene than the tap point. With the, I believe it was the bride and the bridegroom and then another male-female couple. But they were doing some kind of acrobatic dance moves. Yeah. And that was actually really entertaining. So mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed that kind of vaudeville throwback. When I feel like it's a lot of those dance numbers like they were similar setups to like what you see in musicals later but they were just shot like straight from the front static camera because like that bit where they're like kind of like tossing the girls down that line was very reminiscent of one of the numbers in white christmas to me but they film it very differently and in a more dynamic way yeah i think my last note kind of sums up how I felt about the story and about kind of the movie as a whole and that is I am not satisfied with this ending at all at all as underlined we saw everybody end up where we kind of didn't well not everybody maybe Hank is ending up where I would have wanted her yeah like actually pursuing the act and stuff right but the Eddie Queenie pairing is just a non-starter. Yeah. It just, it didn't work. Yeah. Didn't age well. Mm -mm. What about you? Any good notes? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be honest. It was a smidge of a struggle for me to get through this film. Um, It definitely wasn't a waste of time, but again, something that I watched because of its significance, not its entertainment value. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think it's going to end up at the top of either one of our lists um speaking of our lists this is our second film so guess what place it takes second (laughs) yeah we have wings in number one and a broadway melody yeah i think we both have wings um as our number one currently so i guess we'll have to see next one we're tackling is i believe all quiet on the western front that's it i'm actually very much looking forward to that one so we hope you guys are too and that you will tune in for the next episode. Um, 
If you need to find us in the meantime, before that episode drops, we're on Twitter and Instagram at, at Best Pictures Pod on both. And then you can email us in, tell us how much of a struggle Broadway Melody is for you, or explain to us why we're completely wrong and it's one of the best movies ever made, which... If anyone has that argument, I would love to read it. Like not being facetious, I would love to hear like your reasoning and your support behind that. But yeah, so if you can argue that, you can find us at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's it for Broadway Melody. Yeah, thank you all for listening. Tune in next time.